Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. And we are live. It's 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. East Coast, 5.30 p.m. UTC. How are you, fellas? I'm pretty good. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit confused and kerfuffled. Other than that, things are great. What's new there? Not much. But coming into this podcast is not the most seamless experience for me. <laughs> got a new Howard Marks letter. We've got Dan Loeb going public with Disney, getting an immediate response. Toe to toe. Yeah. Lots of folks in. Yep. Where are you? Where are you from? Where are they from, Toby? Yeah, Toby, happy. Everybody. I love it. It's Just a, do like the first forty of them. PNG, Oslo, India. Put them in, fellas. Let me know. New Hampshire, Melbourne, yeah. Apopka, Florida. Maryland, Dubai. There we go. Ah, bro, I'm All not over the place. Popka. Edmonton. I don't even know where a popka is. I love it. Popka. Butler, Finland, Estonia. Yeah. Oh, it looks like it's on the. Where is it? My wife's part Estonian, so good oh, to yeah? see some of her folk calling in. Oh, popka is like. I guess it looks like it's like uh, Orlando-ish. It's coming well, from shout out to house. you for tuning in. Ian Castle from thing. Amish country, Delaware. Shout out to Ian. He's everywhere. VSG2, good to see you. Martin Titus, all right. Who wants to do the intro? Uh, I'll do it. Welcome to Value After Hours. My name is Bill Brewster. I'm here with my esteemed colleagues uh, and co-hosts, Jake Taylor and Toby Carlisle. Jake, what are you going to be talking about today? I have a little segment on we're going to call Sushi Roll Economics. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Toby? Might be bad. Yeah, I got, a, I got a few things I want to talk about. First, uh, Dan Loeb sent a letter to Disney. Um, I think, and then Disney sort of immediately responded. And somebody, not me, coined the phrase Mickey Mouse activism, which I think is a great expression for it. <laughs> I might have been a little bit cynical yesterday when I tweeted it out. I've gone back and thought about it a little bit more. I think this is maybe this is the way activism should be done. And I also want to talk about value because I think I was I was going through uh, you know my portfolio and I I, I just occurred to me like I, I do little valuations on these things all the time. For the first time, it's clear to me that value can outperform from here without any multiple re-rating. So I think you get the multiple re-rating if it starts outperforming. And I think it sort of has been under the covers, like been outperforming for about three months now. But let's let's talk about that. The man is making a call, folks. <laughs> well, his whole career is actually a call. <laughs> there you go. I'm um, all in. <laughs> Uh, and I'm actually going to follow on uh, a little bit of your Disney discussion, and I'll probably loop it into Comcast and what I'm thinking about. So, Jake, you want to start off, and then uh, Toby and I will piggyback each, each other. Each of the veggies rest of it? first. All right, let's get it out of the way. 
So this segment is inspired by a podcast that I listened to this weekend uh, that came out recently that was talking about government intervention and stimulus and how you know we fixed a lot of the aggregate demand problem um, and and it was uh, I found it to be a, a very kind of traditional Keynesian viewpoint. Um, now I don't know. I mean, would these things almost get to religious proportions uh, because it's it's very unscientific because we don't have any counter. There's no control group ever, right? We're just right. we're always you're middling in the, the experiment right all the time. That's right. Um, so anyway, take it for what it's worth. But uh, as a rebuttal to that podcast, which I'm not going to name specifically, uh, is the is this really great little 2008 October 2008 paper from uh, this guy Professor Robert Murphy, who uh, you know he's he's in the Austrian school. Um, he's he's a pretty pretty funny uh, writer, and he has like a really good sense of humor. And coincidentally, I, uh, I've hung out with him a few times. He's pretty good at karaoke. Uh, so. Oh, big <laughs> man! Yeah, the MOC right there. Coincidentally, I've hung out with him. So the name of this article that he wrote is called The Importance of Capital Theory. And he, in that article, was rebutting uh, Paul Krugman, basically. But I'm going to try to walk through uh, what Murphy lays out here and for us to maybe think about it. Um, and I'm probably going to do – and you're probably better off just reading the article than what I'm going to do butchering it. But here we go anyway. All right, so imagine that there's this hypothetical island economy. And – there's a hundred people that live on this island, and the only consumption good that's available is our sushi rolls. Um, and so, every day there's 25 people who they get into their rowboats and they go out and they catch fish with nets. And 25 people are out there gathering rice, uh, and then there's another 25 people who take the fish and the rice and assemble it together. Uh, and and then the last 25 they they do the they work for the, of the boats. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. They're they're a PhD economists. Um, <laughs> they keep the boats and the nets up uh, so that you know that they can keep catching fish. Okay, so in a nice equilibrium, this island economy will produce 500 sushi rolls, which is is five sushi rolls for each person. Okay, one day then, Paul Krugman washes up on the beach and he uh, he starts advising them about how he can boost aggregate demand. Uh, for sushi rolls, like everyone can have more consumption, uh, and he, you know, he shows them this his outboard motor that he that he used to get there, right? So we have a new technological advancement. All right, cool. So now he's advised them, and they're following his advice. And now there are thirty islanders who are out in the boats catching fish, including one of them with this with this motorboat. Uh, we have thirty now who are making uh, who are gathering rice, and there are thirty making rolls. And that leaves then we have five people divided out to go look for the materials to keep like oil and uh, gas to keep this engine running. So we had to kind of reallocate some of the people. And we have five left now to maintain the boats and the nets. OK, so as we're going along, like Krugman looks like a genius, right? Because now all of a sudden we're producing over 600 rolls and that's more than. That's six each, including feeding Krugman uh, as the new king. And Fetch it. Everything, is, everything is great because now we have six rolls each instead of five, right? We're all wealthier. We've boosted aggregate demand. It, it's all good. Now, a lot of people would say like, oh, this is probably due to the motor that we've introduced, like this new technology. 
But really, it's mostly about the reassignment of tasks and getting people working on. We have 30 people who are now going uh, fishing instead of 25, right? So eventually, though, as this goes on, the there's a reduction in the boat and net maintenance, and that starts to catch up with you because now there's holes in the nets. Uh, the boats are, you know, maybe they, someone's got to be bailing half the time because they're getting holes in them, and they're just they're pretty they're getting less fish out of the sea now. So what ends up happening is now we have an imbalance of rice. We have the same 30 people who were doing rice before, and there's what they do is they start cheating and putting smaller amounts of fish into each sushi roll, right? Um, and eventually the boats break down to where now we are only running some of the boats and now we have a lot less right a uh, lot less sushi um, so what's going to end up having to happen is that they're going to have to have a period of of deprivation where we get more people working on fixing the boats and the nets so that we can get this thing stood back up and and everyone eating again right uh, so what ended up happening there was really is it looked like we were wealthy, like we had six sushi rolls each instead of five. But what we were doing was consuming capital. We were consuming our fixed goods of our boats and our nets and not keeping them up. So that initial prosperity was really illusory. It wasn't real prosperity. Now, and obviously, like during the transition, as we as we try to get things back up and running again, there's going to be a bunch of islanders who don't have anything to do, right? Because we already have enough people making rice. Or, or gathering the rice. We already have enough people producing the sushi. Now we have guys just standing around. And obviously that's how we can end up in a situation where everyone is starving and we have unemployment, right? We have a mismatch between the coordination of resources. So I'm going to read this really nice little passage that, um, that Murphy wrote on this that kind of sums it up. In modern economies, workers use capital goods to augment their labor as they transform nature, nature's gifts into consumption goods. Because of the time structure of production, it is possible to temporarily boost everyone's consumption, but only at the expense of maintaining the capital goods, the boats and the nets, which are thus consumed. At some point, engineering reality sets in and no stimulus policies can prevent a, dr a sharp drop in consumption. Okay, so, you know, we... The conventional wisdom right now is that we are stimulating the economy through all of these different programs, uh, whether it's the Fed or direct stimulus uh, from fiscal stimulus from from the government. Well, is this actually that we're creating this consumption that we we're all going to enjoy or are we really consuming capital that we're going to have to end up paying for later? Um, so, you know, he. Uh, the uh, uh, Murphy makes the point, like, because he's writing this in October of 2008 when the housing crisis is like, in, we're in the teeth of it, right? And I don't know, I remember very specifically that time period when TARP was announced and it was, you know, $700 billion. That felt like a lot of money. It was like, that was so <laughs> much money. It was like an unconscionable amount of money at the time. And I mean, you had, you had people who were much more up in arms about that. I don't know if you remember, but they were like, you had economists, you had business people saying like, what are you doing, right? Uh, and now that's such a quaint number. Yeah. I mean, I find it fascinating. We count in trillions now. I know. And Plural. For how much longer are we going to use trillions? Uh, so so he's talking about how in, in Americans in 2006, 
they they consumed a massive amount of consumption goods that were imported because during that housing boom because they erroneously thought that the that their the rising home values were would more than make up for that right but then it turns out that that was kind of illusionary and they ended up basically over consuming and uh consuming really the capital of their houses without realizing it um so you know when i think about all this stuff and you think interest rates exist to coordinate the time of consumption now versus consumption later so do we do we invest more to create the production for for more of us to have have more things later or do we want to consume it now and the interest rate is what tells us like that's the price of time and so you know we have a lot of meddling with interest rates around the world uh and so to declare it i guess my big takeaway from all this is that to declare it a victory now is i think horribly short-sighted and we have to see all of the effects of this before we can say whether uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus is really a good thing and that like we have these new tools that are amazing that plug all the holes and and are gonna help us um, so long pedantic uh, but maybe brought a little bit of um, real world feeling to it by this island you know this sushi economy can I can I just play devil's advocate so why does no. <laughs> why does uh the the arrival of the motorboat or the 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 engine why does that then require us to 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 allocate more people to fishing it didn't it was it was krugman's advice to get more people okay. consuming now to get more because that boosts aggregate demand, aggregate demand. so that right. to get more people consuming so you start with the consumption you start with like everybody's going to eat six sushi rolls now we need more now we now we got a deficit of a hundred sushi rolls. Well, we need to get more people making more sushi rolls. We, we need, need to, to boost consume the sushi more. Rolls. Okay, so it's at equilibrium at five hundred. We we allocate more resources to fishing because that's the bottleneck in the in the sushi roll production. And now we've got more. Now we can eat more sushi rolls, but we do it at the expense of uh, of the equipment. So what's the what's the um, what's the direct analogy like that's the analogy what's the what does it mean in the context of the of our economy well you know i can't help but wonder if we don't underinvest in some things uh and and this isn't the only reason like a lot of it is i think the short-termism of of a lot of the the way that management tenures are structured um I'm, what is the average ceo is like under five years uh that's the turnover to s p 500 I don't care about the boats and the nets if I know I'm out the door in four years with a big yeah. option package and the golden parachute, right? Like I would need to boost those numbers today. I need to have everyone eating lots of sushi rolls today. Don't worry about the nets, right? So um, I think it's, it's pervasive and a lot of it might even be fighting human instinct to, to consume more now. But I think, interest rates being squished down like they are only encourages more of this behavior. You can borrow more now. You can, uh, you think that you're going to have a really easy time to be able to borrow in the future as well, right? Like, so there's not that liquidity concern. Like the markets are always going to be open with fresh money for you. So you can just keep kicking the can down the road. I, um, I, th I think about it in terms a little bit like, 
so you think about Tobin's Q, what Tobin's Q is, is the market value of assets versus the replacement value of assets. So the market value of uh, the assets that are in Tesla is massive. So you get a massive multiple if you can come out with uh, some sort of truck or car that runs on a battery. So Trevor Milton says, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invest like essentially nothing. And I'm going to say this thing is is going to be doing that thing. And then look at the massive multiple that it actually got in the market. So he really did like demonstrate yeah. that in real time that and he's created well, we don't know if that's a valuable thing that he's created or not but i suspect that there are other truck companies out there that are going to be able to do something similar if it turns out that it is so we're sort of we're we're, we're misallocating resources by putting it into those things which the market seems to be valuing extremely highly yeah and in that that kind of buy it versus build it uh calculus it's even easier to just promise to build it right <laughs> What you would never buy it, and you don't even actually have to build it. You just have to. I've got this. The, I've got this killer deck. I've got this killer PDF uh, of what I'm going to do, and that's worth thirty billion dollars. Well, you got that HTML5 supercomputer. Oh yeah, yeah I forgot you, that. So that's... that's that's how I made the deck. <laughs> Jesus. All right, enough veggies. Let's get something more fun here. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about Disney. Um, Dan Loeb, fearsome uh, activist, used to write the the nasty letters. Has as, as we've discussed previously, has sort of taken uh, a vow of uh, not chastity, not poverty. Vow of he's not gonna he's not gonna be saying nasty things to management teams anymore. So he wrote this uh, this note to Disney. I actually think the rationale is uh, is pretty good. He said you're spending three billion dollars a year on the dividend cut the dividend and reinvest it into streaming like that's a that's a lot of money if you stick it into streaming because at the at the moment in the market there's you know even putting aside the short-term stuff that everybody's quarantined and watching a lot of these tel- watching a lot of tv like clearly the world is going to go in that direction and netflix has got an enormous multiple on it disney get that multiple by reinvesting in the streaming infrastructure and and uh, then he just and uh, like I I concur with the, the the strategy. I think it's a good strategy. I just but I just wanted to I just wanted to get this little addendum that he put onto it. And this is kind of what I was a little I tweeted something out yesterday. I was a little bit cynical. I'm 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 going to take it back a little bit because he added this in by providing you with our analysis. This was a footnote, by the way. By providing you with our analysis, we do not intend to participate or intrude in the basic business decisions of the company. We do, however, believe it is an important aspect of our free enterprise system for management and boards of directors to listen to investors' perceptions of a company's long-term prospects and opportunities to enhance shareholder value. 100% agree with that. That's, I think that's an entirely legitimate thing. So really all they've done is they've written a letter and they've said, here's our idea, don't spend so much on the dividend, reinvest into the streaming. And then he's shown, shown some of their analysis and I, I really like the letter. So then Disney responded and they said, um, yes, what we're going to do is we're going to restructure. We're going to allocate some more resources to, to the streaming side. We're going to do some sort of cosmetic stuff internally in a, in a management sense. And then the stock popped 5% after hours. And I was like, my, my tweet was, you know, Lowell pretends to do activism. Disney pretends to respond. Stock price pops 5%. But <laughs> on, on thinking about it again, I actually think this is, this is how... This is how capitalism 
and public companies and big investors. This is how it should be done. He doesn't necessarily have to make this letter public, but I'm glad that he did because I, uh, you know, as, an, as a potential investor in Disney and I, I, I like learning from Dan Loeb, I think it's a good thing. You, as a big investor, you just express your wishes and management, you know, they, they said no to the dividend cut because, uh, you know, for, there are lots of good reasons to keep your dividend. But they said yes to we're going to do some, we're going to do something with the streaming. So I thought there was a pretty good illustration of the way that maybe that's how business should be done. I'm curious about, you know, that everyone looks at these TAMs and talks about, you know, how big, great these companies are. But right in front of our face, we have Netflix talking about going into animation and and Disney trying to get into streaming content. So this is like a collision course, right? Like ever, there's guys, tell me there's not going to be a bloody ocean waiting for all of this stuff like a couple years out from now. Here's the I'll thing. That. I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, I think your bloody ocean might be filled with Viacom and CBS and all that. I'm not sure there's not a chance for Netflix and Disney to coexist, and that's your next $60 bundle. The The only thing I would say is that, and this is the, the criticism that I made of Netflix when, when I was short last year, uh, the the challenge, the, there's, a, there's a big difference between being a cable company and having the wire punch through a wall where there's really no competition and you, you set the price that the customer will bear. You know, it's... The introductory number is $40 a month, then it's $80 a month, and then it's $120 a month, and what are you going to do? Like, you can't get any, anything else. On the other hand, and so that's the business that the cable companies are in. The movie studios, they stick a billion dollars, well, that might be an exaggeration, but like, let's say hundreds of millions of dollars into these big movies. And if they work, then it's a bonanza, and you get you know Marvel, or you get uh, you know Titanic, or you get something like... Um, uh, the big blue aliens on the other planet, whatever that was. Um, Avatar. Avatar. Avatar, thanks, yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the other option is you spend a whole lot of money in these things and you get Waterworld or you get something like that. Like, it's a boom-bust kind of business if, and you got all of your investment is up front. That's a tough business. Yeah. Disney has less of a problem with that right. than Netflix does. Right. That's why I've always sort of thought that if you like the math behind Netflix, you could love the math behind Disney. Um, so whose who's multiple is wrong then? Well, Netflix. I mean, yeah, I don't look. I don't know. I, I, I can understand why people assign the multiple they assign to Netflix. And I also understand why people are offended at the multiple that Netflix carries. But... Dude, have I you mean, ever streamed I, it, bro? Well, <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, you know, I don't know. that They've done much, much better than I thought that they would, and their scale is getting bigger and bigger, and it's not like the capital markets are turning off to them, and they have a shareholder base that wants them to go do this. So I would, I mean, I wouldn't be smart enough to run the same strategy, but if you drop me in their shoes, I would do the exact same thing. I'd probably try to spend more. I mean, I don't, I don't see why they, I don't, there is no incentive when you're trying to own the rest of eternity, basically, right? Like they're trying to get a scale advantage on video content. I mean, you laugh, but like they might actually do this. But the thing is, if you've got a if you've got a smart TV, I mean, I think that's an old term, right? That's like space age when that was fifty years ago. If you've got a smart TV, you can get a tile 
on that smart TV and I can produce the content and give you a tile for your TV. Like no one cares whether you've got, I, I can switch off any of those tiles at any stage and I regularly do. If, I, if HBO sucks, I'll turn HBO off and then if something comes on that I want to watch, I'll turn it back on again. So I can just turn a tile on and off anytime that I want. Yeah, but I mean, who's going to be around at the end of this? I mean, anybody. Netflix it's is democratized. Full blown scorched earth. <laughs> anybody. But so is YouTube. I, yeah, I mean, without I spending guess, the money. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of a business model. Objection, when, is, right? when has anyone ever won in a scorched earth scenario? <laughs> I I mean, I think that when you're chasing global scale, if you win, you win. Like, I mean, that's why you do it. They're they're playing a different game. They're they're not. People have won local scale advantage games before. Netflix's local scale advantage game is the Globe. But the way that you I mean, win that's this game, fucking crazy, is not by. But you will. I, I don't think the way that you win the game is by signing up the entire world. The way that you win the game is by producing the best content, and that's extremely hard to do. But mm. Disney has a huge advantage there. So Disney has all of these. Like, they're very, very good. We're going to get a tentpole princess, and we're going to own that demographic of little girls who remember that, ten, like. Frozen, Elsa, everybody who's mm. got kids, you know, girls who are of a certain age, that's that's their princess. And then uh, there'll be another one that'll come out and it'll be, they'll own that. Disney's very good at recycling that content through, you know, merchandise, television. That's the challenge, right? For Netflix particularly. Yeah, I think. I, I just watched the uh, making of Frozen 2 Uh if I ever get the opportunity to renegotiate with my wife, the one girl that I could leave her for, Kristen Bell is going to be like way <laughs> high on that list. The fact that she was both Sarah Marshall and can sing like Anna, oh, oh my, that got me it, hot and bothered. Is, is that uh, she's good? Forgetting Sarah Marshall, is that? The... Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, and she can sing. That was sexy. Uh, but I digress. <laughs> I guess that. The way that like you my watch mind, good place. You might like what? that one. Check out the good place. Maybe I don't know if I need more of her in my life. I may need less. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess that uh, the thing that um, I, I just think Disney has a real shot. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is I, I've talked about this particular letter now for hours and hours. Uh, with Francisco and my buddy, uh, the science of hitting. Um, and I guess that like where I think I've come on this is Disney has a unique opportunity right now to really like push the envelope and to flex customer relationships in a way that no other company has other than maybe Netflix. Netflix, I, I mean, I happen to agree with you, Toby, when you were like, uh, you know, their their inventory ages like food. I mean, I I can't even remember the De Niro movie that came out. And honestly, like, I didn't even think that thing was that good. It sucked to watch it on a screen at home. Like these arguments about going direct to consumer, I think, are insane. Like the the theater experience made Marvel and Star Wars what they are. I don't think if you drop a bunch of movies direct to consumer and collapse the theater window and have everybody watching stuff on shitty ass sound in their house. You know, God forbid your house is tiled. There's no sound, 
you know it's just like bouncing all over the place frozen sounds like shit like i don't think you can do that um wife never lets you turn it up anyway loud enough to get that that little thud in your chest yeah well unlike your speaker I, i don't know i just think the theater experience is very important to somebody like disney so i think that like people that are arguing that disney should copy netflix in that way are really missing like a big part of the picture but i do understand why this is the time to press the advantage and i i thought that um i thought Loeb's letter at first was sort of the the feedback that i had heard about it i was like this is kind of nuts and then when i read it i did kind of like it and i think that this the stock reaction today seems pretty rational to me i mean if you start doing the math on 200 million subs at you know 10 bucks a month or whatever it gets pretty crazy and they don't have that like disney doesn't have that perpetual machine to feed like netflix does like i think disney could get to similar numbers with much better economics than netflix can end up having just as a function of their franchises and back catalog and that shit is hard to do. Watch the Frozen. The making of Frozen 2 is awesome. Like, that was really good. Forget about Kristen Bell. I mean, don't forget about Kristen Bell. But <laughs> watch it despite that. She's the bonus. Mm. So what's your what's your topic segue onto, onto the... Oh, well... Who, who does and, this hurt? So if Netflix well, and Disney yeah. both win, who, who gets who gets bloodied in this? You know, I don't know. But, like, so that's, that's... I think Comcast is really stuck in the middle here. Um, and, and as a shareholder, it makes me not thrilled about the choices that I think they may face and how they may respond. Um, I don't really know whether or not that's a fair thing to say. I I had tweeted something out, like imagine what Netflix would pay for DreamWorks and Illumination. And I now realize that was pretty stupid just given like Netflix's culture and, I, th- I thought about it a little bit more, and I can understand why DreamWorks may not work in Netflix. I, I would like for Comcast to call up Apple and offer them DreamWorks or AT and T or something like that. Like I think, I think that you're going to have a lot of people that are going to try to spend a lot of money, and there's only going to be a couple that can do it. Um, and I, I don't know. Um, like to me, I look at Comcast, and it's interesting because I like the cable business. I think NBCU was a really good acquisition when they made it, but like the future is definitely harder than the last 10 years have been. So then what are you like, what are you really getting into? Are you getting into a scenario where the, the, you know, free cash from the cable business is used to invest a shit ton of money in Peacock, which I think is sort of a so-so experience as it is. And then, like, uh, they've got a bunch of different strategies where I I watch Xfinity on my Roku, but, like, that kind of sucks. But their cable box experience, I think, is actually kind of awesome, but no one wants to hear about it anymore because you have to rent a box and, like, people are pissed off at that. So I just think that they got a lot of problems. Uh, So I don't know. I think, like, like, some of Comcast's content could make a lot of sense with AT&T or AT&T's with Comcast or something like that. Um, and then Apple just has so much money. They'll just spray it everywhere. So I don't know. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> yeah, As well, an Apple, dude, share- <laughs> yeah, well, Apple shareholder. The thing is Apple shareholders are just going to be like, who cares? Right. I mean, it's, if you spend 
Well, yeah, dude. If you spend, let's say Apple blows $20 billion on content, that's like two quarters of cash flow. It doesn't even fucking matter, man. Good like, that's crazy, be. but it's true. Like, the For amount- what end, though? What is it? What are they getting with that $20 billion? That's Apple part TV of the ecosystem, stuff? I guess. Yeah. The, the the old rule used to be the that rundle. when it, there's there's like when the technology changes the there's this sort of short period where the value accrues to the distributors like the pipes get get the value but then it always returns to the content creators because the content creators they're the ones who have the unique offering i get that they need distribution too but in this day and age distribution is the easy part right you you can worst case scenario you, you you're cobra kai and you stick it up on youtube or if you've got a little bit more kind of infrastructure behind you, you do what that master class, master, is that what they're yeah. called? Like they kind of build their own app and then basically they just go and interview interesting people and charge you a couple of hundred bucks for a year to, you know, to, to learn something maybe while you're watching masterclass. So I, I see there are lots and lots of models out there that mean that it's going to be very easy for someone to get into the game. I mean, I'm, I think if you're, at the, if you're a content producer now, why would you go, I mean, aside from getting some fine, assuming that you can finance yourself, right? You've got enough finance there. So you're someone like um, the Harry Potter lady. She, she owns basically, she's got a franchise that is the scale of any other, you know, that's a Star Wars scale franchise, right? She's a billionaire as a result, but she's got, she could, turn herself into a mini disney if she wanted she could get the ten, you know make little television shows for all of those characters write another book create spin-offs she could she could do that if she wanted to she could create her own app where you just sign up for harry potter world or whatever she wants to call it and it's it, it, the, the challenge isn't distribution anymore the challenge is having a good idea that lots of people will will buy into yeah, I mean, you know, they've got the thing that uh, Harry Potter's got the what the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal. Right, she's so, doing. A lot I of mean, it. yeah, well, and that that's uh, I don't I don't know. I guess that's that's Kids why. Like that one. Although I liked twelve dollars for a butter beer, chap my ass. <laughs> What's in a butter well, beer? Uh, it's like a. There's no beer, but it's like butterscotch. Yeah, butterscotch syrup uh, drink. Why did you not call it a butterscotch? I feel like you missed out there. The other reason that I kind of wanted Comcast to sell some assets to Netflix is I think like the the park business. I think I think there's a shot that Netflix could actually sort of recreate some of of what Disney has action with figures n- enough money. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I animation is from what I can tell, by far the best place to play in content from a business standpoint. And I don't see why, if you're Netflix, why you don't have Disney's playbook of sort of like that wheel that feeds itself, and then you have the figurines, and then you have all this shit. So it just sort of seems like, to me, and I guess like Reed doesn't want to have anybody else's culture, and I sort of get that, but the other side of it is you have an engine that's actually currently working, and the amount that Netflix could spend and still justify, it's kind of interesting. Is the, is the engine, would you say that the engine is currently working? What, within Comcast? No, 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 Netflix, sorry. Oh, well, I think that they have some economic questions that they could help to solve and i think that if you had some like if you could actually acquire a parks business uh 
and you could start to bring out. Do they make key money? Lum- what Comcast Parks Park, business? Yeah, yes, Park's great business. business. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then you get you know if you start to get. I mean, it's not a great business now. They're going to have us like Stranger Things and and yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's House what they of should cards, be doing. Right? Well, dude, this is what they're investing. <laughs> Which in, one's right? scarier? I mean, it's not about it's not about today. It's about ten years from now. So if you can really like spend as much as they're spending on animation, I don't think it's unfathomable that they can make one or two franchises out of that, and then you invest in parks, and then you start to get the flywheel going. I mean, it takes a while, but you know, we're we all claim to be long term oriented. That's if I was long term oriented for Netflix, that's a hundred percent where I'd drive that company. Now, maybe they maybe. won't. Maybe they just want to be a, a media company, but that's not as good of a business, in my opinion. Let me ask you this: Do you think there's any uh, fatigue to franchises in general? Just like I'm just tired of superhero movies. I'm a little tired of no, like, bro. Them. They fucking crush when they drop. People go to the yeah. theaters like crack fiends. Yeah, I'm with you though. <laughs> like, look at Endgame. I, know, I can't watch like, another Star Wars. Like it, I like can't watch another superhero. Do. Well, let me ask you this: like, how many more are there that we could plug in? Like, is there room for ten more Star Wars level franchises to go around, or is that like sort of like, well, that was sort of a window of nostalgia based, you know? In the, I don't know, man. I'm not sure there's enough. I'm not sure that pie is that big on the franchise uh, slots. Well, I mean, I don't know that you have to be that sure. Uh, let's see. Top grossing lifetime movies. Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. That's 2015. Avengers Endgame, 2019. Avatar is three. Black Panther was number four. Avengers Infinity War is number five. I mean, so what? Three yeah, of the like- top five are Avengers. And Call came of out Duty, in the last two uh, years. More money than all of those combined, the last drop, right? Like, maybe they're missing the the real obvious thing, which is the video games. Well, I don't know that Disney's a video game company, but you asked a, a movie franchise issue, and what I'm telling you is three of the top five gross, grossing films of all time belong to Avengers and came out in the last, I mean, really two years that theaters were open. So it's hard for me to say that there's consumer fatigue. It's fu- data, bro. I think data. It's, fair enough. I think it's funny how few watchable movies there are. Like I used to, maybe it's because there's been a huge investment in TV. Like everybody's worked out that you don't want to get, you know, don't spend two hundred million dollars making a movie that people are going to watch once. If you're going to spend the two hundred million, make a season of something and give people ten or thirteen chances to watch something and get into it and have their friends talk about it and tell you about it, and then you know you've proved over the course of a season that there's demand for it, and now you've got something very valuable because you can game of thrones it you know now we can every week we're going to bring out like the thing that everybody wants to watch this week is the final episode of game of thrones or the episode whatever it happens to be yeah i don't know uh it's it's interesting how game of thrones didn't drop the whole season at once and i and that benefited it i think quite a bit thing right? right Yeah, and I and I also think that they, I, I mean, HBO could have pivoted, I guess, in theory, but probably not. But it was nice to have an event, you know, and watch the end of the season yeah, together. I agree. Uh, part of the things that sucks about streaming is like it drops and it's already gone before I even find out about it. Yeah. Can't have any like water cooler talk. It's yeah. like, oh, no, I didn't watch that. That shit's like, like I got into Cobra Kai and people are like, yeah, dude, two years too late, yeah. loser. Yeah, well, I got into like, it right, this whatever. week. I fucking like it. Shut up. 
I found it this week, so that's how far That's <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I didn't Late know. adopter. I'm a very late adopter of the TV, yeah. yeah. How's that Pixel phone working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's, that's a, it's a different matter. It's just my little okay. kids and, and uh, other things going on. So if you... I mean, like, it'll be interesting to see, too, uh, Discovery just partnered with Curate, my beloved. Hi, Barry Schwartz. You're welcome for the mention of Curate again. Um, you know, and, like, they want to do Food Network with QVC. That's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's possible to scale up these legacy companies and then, like, release this version of Zaslov's skinny bundle that he always wants to see. But, like, man, my, my wife, she is addicted to Bravo. She is, like, a fiend. So the idea that there's not something there. My condolences. I actually kind of like it. You ever watch Below Deck? It's not that bad. No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's not bad. I mean, you know, I'm not going to sit here and go tell people like, oh, yeah, Below Deck's the best thing ever. But I'll watch that shit for sure. MTV The Challenge. You'll find me watching that. Putting up with the commercials. But I'm digressing. So anyway, like, I don't know if there's like a like a some package of content that makes sense for those people. And I don't know how you distribute it. Like, I don't know. These are hard questions. I don't know where the world's going. Throw your questions in, folks. Um, but that's what makes me nervous about Comcast, right? Because, like, they used to be the distributor. What are they going to do? They're going to invest in Peacock. Some shitty-ass technology, if you ask me. Don't you just need the, but don't you just need the content? I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I legitimately, I know this like really makes people mad on Twitter when I say this, but like I use Roku. I don't think Roku is that good of a product. Like, I mean, I fine. If you want to buy a cheap TV and you want that software, like I get it, it's fine. But I actually think the Xfinity product is quite good. Um, they just, to your point, I don't know how they, you need a distribution mechanism and then you need the content to distribute. Right. So how do they have that and how do the economics work? That's a hard question. You're going to get Peacock blocked now. <laughs> but you, uh, what's the what's the what's the Roku? I've seen it talked about a lot. I don't I don't I know that it's like a it's a it's a streaming but it's a streaming thing, right? It's a TV. Well, it's, it's like the TV software. but for hobos. <laughs> no, it's the software that that basically they partnered with uh I think it was like TCL and maybe Hisense and one other company and their their distribution sort of strategy was to lead with hardware. So if you look at like their financials, you'll see that the hardware gross margins are super tight. And in the beginning, people were like, oh, this is a shit business. But what people didn't see is they were just leading. It was like a razor razor blade model. Right. Um, so then they got their software into enough homes that at least in the U.S., I think this is globally, but they're involved in like the standard setting. So if Netflix wants to come out with an app like redesign, I'm pretty sure Roku is in the discussion, maybe not against Netflix, but I think that they're like some of the what the hurdle that you have to get through is that Roku says, yes, this looks good. And then they got, you know, a bunch of advertising and uh, you're, you own a big screen. Are they competing with Apple TV? And, you know, I've got a, a Google TV and there's a Amazon Prime. Yeah, everybody's Amazon trying Fire. to sell you something and take a rake off it. Right? So Roku's theory is we get in enough homes and then you sign up for Disney Plus and then we get our commission on Disney Plus. And then, Gee, you know, that's I mean, a tough that's business. 
Like the the Apple TV is pretty cheap, but then the 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 Google version is like thirty bucks. That and the Amazon Fire is like thirty bucks. Like that's what you're competing with. Apple TV sucks. Yeah, but there's other. And like, everyone other that's options. like, oh, check out Apple TV. I'm never going to. I I have not seen for for seven years. I've been waiting for Apple TV to get good, and it's never happened. What do you mean get good? And they're not going to get me back in with Jennifer content? Aniston. Content? Or? No, man. <laughs> No, I had like one of the very first boxes, like the yeah, Apple TV yeah. box. And like, it's just, I don't, it just kind of sucks to use. Like, I don't really care for the remote and but the then, interfaces. You know, there's a, there's a Google version of it. There's an Amazon version of it. Yeah. And those well, things Google are like. Google and Roku are sort of like the smart, the, Google, I guess, has the rest of the world. And then Roku has a pretty strong position in the US is my understanding. I have the Google one. Like I have a little fob that I can take with me when I travel and it's got all my stuff yeah. on it and it's just, it already talks to my phone and my computer and it just means I don't have to think when I go anywhere else. Like That's what they'd like. But it's just, so, it's, I mean, we've got Apple TVs. All, it, it's all just of daddy's so, special videos. <laughs> there's, there's nothing special on that. Oh, okay. It's just, there's, it just seems to me like that, that's the, that's, you need that little bit of hardware. I get that. But then once you're in that hardware, so I can app, I can access from the Apple TV, I can access Amazon. From the Google TV, I can access Amazon. Like Amazon's kind of like, well, you can you can go through our hardware, you can go through our, um, it's my phone talking to me, or you can go through the tile and we don't care. Like if you go through the tile, you buy up, you know, I've got a prime membership anyway. So it's t- I think that's a tough business to be competing in. Gee. Yeah, I think they're they were smart to hook up with TV manufacturers. That was a intelligent decision to get in the home. Google's done the same thing. Yeah, that's right. That's why I think Amazon should do the same thing. I don't know what Amazon's messing around with this Fire Stick. It seems like a real waste of time. But they've got the they've got the tile. Like you can get the tile through Apple TV. Apple TV is probably the dominant part of the market, right? Uh, I don't think that things. Apple TV is, but. Yeah, I mean, you could in theory, but that you're, it's more layers, right? If you're Amazon, don't you want to be the initial landing layer? I'd want to I'd wanna partner with the TV manufacturers and then be the, the layer of software that other things ride on. I wouldn't want to ride on somebody else's software. And then sell it through Amazon for cheap. Yeah. It's easy. They, they're going to win that, right? The, the, the big issue there is antitrust. Well, I mean, you would What's say that? that they were going to win it, but Roku <laughs> continues to execute, so... I don't think that they can just win it, but it's both, interesting. Both parties are making antitrust noises at the moment. Nobody's doing anything, but like, I don't know what you would do, but it's, it does seem like something is coming. That's the greatest buying opportunity for all those things ever when it finally gets here. Toby, I don't know. <laughs> I actually think most people have already priced that in probably. I'm not sure it would sell off. People have been having this discussion for so long. Everybody that I know is like, you got to buy the shit out of them once they're regulated. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to strangle no, no competitors then. Yeah. All right. Here's a, here's a question. Uh, how do you think about the ethics of a company before making an investment? Do companies, do you avoid companies that go too far, like rumors of child labor, or do you just look at fundamentals? I don't know. I'd buy Nike now. I would have bought them in the 90s if I was smart enough. So they built something on the back of child labor, allegedly, and that didn't matter to me very much. I'm not trying to go out and yeah, act Bill's it. pro-child child labor. 
No, I just I wouldn't like I'm not going to sit there and uh, and, you know, I don't know. JT. Um, I would advise if you were if in the short term, you can get away with that kind of thing. But in the long term, eventually you have to have every interface that a company has has to have a good relationship. Otherwise, uh, there'll be defections that will can can sacrifice the company dude that Um, was 20 years ago and nike is crushing it they basically moved all their labor over to china doing that and yeah well they stopped exploiting children but it's not like they have like fair labor practices they're made in china like they've abused people for decades and no one gives a shit so is apple by that measure i don't know if yeah that's right so i don't know where do you draw this line on one hand, are they abusing people or are they giving people opportunity? I don't know. These these issues get so murky that I just decide I'm not going to deal with them. That's I'd... fair. I I don't I don't take umbrage with that either. I think you're, that those jobs may be better than what the the alternative was for that person. But yeah, I mean, the other side of it is there's suicide nets under the windows, so they're probably not great jobs. <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, maybe that's the best alternative. I don't know. So I don't know where you start drawing the line, in my opinion. I think it's very, very hard. I think the specific example aside, which is you can have you can have legitimate moral arguments on both sides of that and, you know, resolve that to your own satisfaction. But I, so I, you know, I, I have a, a quantitative approach that doesn't consider things like that. However, if I was running a discretionary portfolio, I'd be on the lookout for any single thing that could poke a hole in anything that I held because I'd want to hold it for basically forever. And so anything like that, like any ethical missteps or anything that I was a little bit nervous about, if I saw them doing it, then that would be a big issue for me is the answer for me. I mean, I just bought cigarette companies, so I don't think I can sit here and say I care too much. That's another, that's not, no one's holding a gun to their head and telling them to smoke them these days. Like everybody knows, right? That's, it doesn't necessarily mean I would buy them either, but I'm just saying... At this is. point, that's sort of where I'm at, and I've bitched at my mom to quit smoking her whole life, and she hasn't. So if I'm going to lose my mom to cancer, I might as well make some money on the cigarette companies. Mm. That's fair. Close system. Do you have a focus on dividends or growth potential when composing portfolio? Not really. The question, do I want my money now or management to hang on to it? Is that the question? Uh I guess the question is the question is I asked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, if it's depends on the management, I guess. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> I would challenge, you know, if you are big into dividends and you think about think about Berkshire, and would you have wanted that that dollar back to figure out what to do with it, or would you rather have Warren kept it and compounded book value at twenty percent? Uh, I mean, to me, I, I'm pretty happy to let him keep working with that dollar. So, so it depends on the management, though. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's I agree with that. I was going to say I have a slight preference for yield, not necessarily dividends. I like to see. I just like to see the Either money. Either way, I mean, whatever return of capital. I mean, the the fact is, most companies can't reinvest all of the cap. Most good companies can't reinvest all of the capital that they generate, and so they need to be paying it out or opportunistically buying back stock. You know, making smart acquisitions, doing things like that. I have a a bias towards a little bit of that rather than reinvesting it because I think that 
most management teams aren't up to reinvesting it, but then that might just be focused more on the management teams who can. And certainly Buffett's one of those guys. He's in the discussion. We're thinking about bringing him on the team, maybe starting five next time, next season. See how he goes. The thing about dividends is cash flow is what actually makes you rich or wealthy, I should say. Right. Rich is a number. Cash flow is passive income exceeding your expenses. So, uh, you know, I haven't seen too many people pay bills with buybacks. Now, you could sell proportionately into one, and that makes sense to me. But um, that, that was the most out of 2020 comment I've ever I've heard all year. <laughs> you yeah, don't get well, rich with cash flow. Well, that's 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 what that's what Greenblatt said on the Red Holtz podcast, right? What? If you took all of the companies last year that had like a billion dollar market caps or greater, I think it was market caps, that had lost money and you invested in those, you're up like 65% this year or something like that and you outperformed, obviously, if you're up that much. Yeah, man. It's the golden age of selling dreams. Comment here from Value Stock Geek, fading ESG will be a solid source of returns for the next decade. I'll just put that up because I wanted to make a comment about that. The problem that I see with ESG, aside from the fact that the same argument that everybody always makes, that everybody's got their own definition of it, um, I think there are like kind of objectively there are some problems with our definitions of ESG, and we could there are things that we can all agree on, and probably you know we could produce a good ESG product, but nobody who's sensible and agrees on all those things is going to invest in it. Unfortunately, you need to be appealing to the fringes, and so that they're always going to be loopy these ESG funds. Well, I'm like, look, when I said what I said about Nike, like, I'm not trying to go invest in companies with the hope that they're going to go exploit children. That's not my statement. But if I was a Nike, I mean, honestly, that's how you scream for it. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying, because I'm sure somebody's going to get all mad. But um, how about you know, Rick? on the other hand, like if I held Nike and that came out, I don't think I'd sell it. I mean, and that's just honest, like, and I'm sorry if that like pisses somebody off, but that's the truth. I mean, I'm betting on the brand, not whether or not they're going to exploit child labor in perpetuity. So I just don't, I, I don't think I'd sell based on that. Like if Apple was exploiting children, I don't think most Apple shareholders would sell. I think they'd be like, oh, buy back into the share fall, you know, the share selling off. Just make sure that I get more buybacks. What about the ESG kind of argument of that's similar to the indexing one, where it's like just the flow of funds is going to be enough to kill you for the next ten years if you were to try to fade it? Well, I mean, this I, and I have the same argument with the other argument, the other flow argument. Doesn't that just leave you with all of these good? Like, I don't, I don't care about multiple re-rating. I just want something that has a reasonable yield and reasonable growth. And if I buy it at that level and I keep on getting those things, I don't care if the multiple doesn't re-rate. That's the thing that these guys, these arguments seem to miss. Like, I don't yeah. care if the multiple doesn't re-rate. If these things get cheap enough that I can buy, I'll go and take them over. I'll go and take them out myself. I will be the, I will be the agent and I will make money doing that. That's why I just, the arguments are so silly. <laughs> I didn't mean to direct that at you. Sorry. Wasn't it me? I, yeah, I, I, I do know who it was. Yeah. At. <laughs> no, well, and it's like the other thing is, you know, if uh, you know, say that say that there are no flows into Altria, right? I mean, yeah. Altria fundamentally you get a ten percent selling. Yeah, well, and it's selling one of the most addictive products in the world that's ever been invented, and it's one of the best businesses ever. 
So if you want to pound that down to five times earnings, they're going to buy the shit out of their shares and the cash flow is going to be there. So if you have a long time horizon and you actually don't care about underperforming, that's really okay. I mean, that, I mean, it's, right. it's sort of in a weird way presents the opportunity right. that everybody else is afraid of. So right. like, fine, puke it. I'll, I'll take it. If you're a fundamental guy, it's the best thing that could possibly happen to you. As long as you have a capital as as you can survive. that will return it. As long as you can survive. And has the cash flow, yeah. That's right. What do you think about concentrated portfolios? Uh, Pabri only holds two stocks at the moment? No, he's got a bunch of Indian ones. Is that so? He only has to disclose the US ones. Okay, okay. Don't but, we answer this like every other week? <laughs> I feel like. Pabri like specific. This is no, what no, I no. think. Just concentration think... in general. Yeah, you're the the guys that you read about and worship are going to have concentrated portfolios, and there's they are littered with people that tried and didn't. Now they're like poor, That's and right. their wife hates them. That's right. So you know how much do you care about survivorship bias there's when a big you worship something? Bias. That's right. Yeah. You can make the argument though; it's perfectly rational for them though to do that, right? Because you either hit a home run or or strike out right. and go find some find another job, right? So inherently, you have to kind of expect your if you're trusting a manager uh, that their their incentives are to go big or go home. Yeah, I'm sort of unless they've got their own money really right next to yours, which is kind of the only semi anecdote to that. That's one of the interesting, you know, the concentrated investing book. We looked at guys had 25 year track records of, of outperformance and the I think the thing that really stood out to me was that the nature of the businesses that they bought, like they just, that you know, that more Buffett style, we, we're not going to buy anything that's got any catastrophe risk in it whatsoever because if you're going to be concentrated and you've got 10 or 15 or 20% of your portfolio into something and that blows up, then, you you know, you lose a limb if that happens and you, you might you might be You want to be in like really safe stuff like hotels, airlines. <laughs> <laughs> Real steady cash flows, restaurants. I was thinking about this the other day with uh, a lot of these SaaS multiples. I mean, I really do understand why people are doing it. I just think uh, the hard thing for me to then get to is if you're buying those companies because of some of the inherent safety and growth in the stocks, uh, if you end up underperforming because you didn't do good valuation work, and the valuation already has blown past. Like a couple of people are like, "Oh, we're only in the third inning." It's like, yeah, but the fucking stock is priced like <laughs> it's you know, it's it's all like over. They won the <laughs> that's not really the question here, Raising unless I banner. just don't understand the game, which I may not. Right, but like there used to be two parts of this game that mattered. Um, so you know, they still if, matter. Maybe I don't know. But, you know, what I do know is if in seven years they haven't really gone anywhere, but the business has grown into the valuation, I think you still own a good business. And maybe if you have a 30-year time horizon and you're Which right. they all do. You know that's, that's the yeah, time horizon I mean, they're thinking. Right. I'm just saying, I guess, I, I what I'm saying is I understand the behavior. I think that the behavior has been taken way too far, and I think that it has been too rewarded i think if i was one of them listening to this i'd be like you don't know what the hell you're talking about you missed out on all that some of that's a fair criticism like i i don't disagree uh but 
I also doesn't don't think that like the comments that I'm making don't have merit because I missed out on some of like I admit I maybe don't understand what Twilio can be. If you think I'm not at least curious enough to understand what that company does, then like I don't think you've listened to the podcast and what I'm telling you is I'm curious enough to know what it does and I don't have a clue how you get that build up on it here. But Snowflake. I would have said the same thing before. Well, that's yeah, what it, it, I mean. It's first order thinking that we say this company will be bigger in five years. Okay, it's gotta be I, huge. I, I, totally. I believe you. Like, I think that's a very reasonable assumption. However, I'm not sure that the security price will be bigger right. five years from now. The business will be bigger. The company might be the same size or smaller. Yeah, and I think I think that the error that I used to make when I like before I really thought deeply is you know your terminal cap rate is going to be quite a bit. <laughs> lower right so your terminal multiple is going to be quite a bit higher in these companies than it will be in other companies i mean they are going to trade at steep multiples in perpetuity but i'll take the under on that perpetuity there'll be a day when this stuff is software in general that's going to trade at a big multiple no fucking way man (laughs) i don't know why 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 because they're incredible businesses they are but there's if if they get like if it's that easy to start and disrupt why won't they be competed? Like, why won't the competition come in and, and, and compete yeah, well, for some of that? I think that's a fair question about TAM and duration and all that stuff, which is why I have not been comfortable playing that game. Snowflake has a $62 billion TAM and it has a $65 billion market capitalization. I think that's amazing. Yeah, but that's, that can't be the TAM like five years out. That might be today's. Well, the, the market capitalization's today's. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I get it. That's real. I get it. <laughs> the, the margins are negative fifty-two percent, but the uh, the Credit Suisse report said that by twenty forty-two, margins will be forty-eight percent, and they will have grown revs from I think they're like five hundred and fifty-eight million. Then it grow them ninety times. Uh, good luck, everybody holding that. I went from still over twenty forty-two. Let's to get to break even. It's currently trading on eighty times twenty twenty-one expected price to. Revenue sales. Twenty twenty one's a little early. I, I twenty twenty three. I think you got to think. I mean, I, I, I. First of all, I agree with what you're saying and the sentiment you're uh, laying down and how you're saying it. I also do think that if you're looking at this year's sales multiple, you're doing it a little wrong. But I'm looking at twenty twenty ones. No, I know, but I think you really got to look at like twenty twenty three. I mean, if you're really going to play that game with okay. these hyper growth, it's probably like on 30 times. What? It's going to be. Th- What's the right multiple then, though? I don't fucking know. I mean, if I knew this stuff, I'd play in that world. But what I'm saying is, I used to say that I definitively knew that it was crazy. I I do not know that, and I have been wrong in the past. I also do believe that. The price you pay matters, and in my opinion, the reason that I was comfortable laying the bet zoom, and I still think that I have a reasonable shot at, at winning that bet, is I was betting on an $80 billion base compounding, and $80 That's billion right. dollars used to be a lot of money. Maybe right. it no longer is, but as we're, far as I'm concerned... What's the update on that? Where, where's the, where are you oh, at for I don't that know. One? I haven't looked, but... Uh, we're running out of time here, fellas, but yeah. if you can... But, you know, Give us big, an update later. Big bases compounding for a long time is by definition difficult bases and i cannot lie all right guys (laughs) thanks very much fellas we'll be around next week see you then have a good one
stop, stop when the cops.